Today on Happy Sack Confused, Jason Reitman goes political with his new film, The Front Runner. Hey guys, I'm Josh Hurwitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy Sad Confused. I'm Josh, you're you, and Jason Reitman is the object of our attention today. The filmmaker behind the newest film starring Hugh Jackman, Vera Farmiga, J.K. Simmons, a whole host of talented actors. It is the front runner. Uh, it is now open, I believe, in New York and Los Angeles, opening around the country November 21st. Uh, this is a good one. This is a really good one. This one is based on the true story of Gary Hart. If you're as old as me, you might remember Gary Hart was, in fact, the front runner for the Democratic nomination back in 1988. Um, a really charismatic, um, interesting political player who was brought down by uh, an extramarital affair, a, uh, a scandal, uh, back when scandals like that um, I, it, kind of the landscape shifted, and that's sort of what this film is all about. It's well worth your time. It features a great performance from uh, our friend and buddy, our everyone's favorite person, Mr. Hugh Jackman. Uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting take from Jason Reitman, who's never directed a film quite like this before. Uh, shades of Robert Altman and Michael Ritchie. We talk all about that in this conversation. Um, a real pleasure to have uh, a filmmaker who has been kind of killing it from the start. If, you, if, you know, if you're a, a film fan like I am, you know that Jason Reitman uh, came to prominence um, with his film Thank You for Smoking and soon followed it up with the likes of, of Juno and Up in the Air. Uh, most recently this year, he directed Charlie's Theron in their second collaboration together. They, of course, uh, teamed up on Young Adult. But their newest one, uh, back I think it was in the spring, it came out, and on a lot of I think it's going to pop up, pop up on a lot of critics' year end lists. It certainly um, could on mine. It was a, a great film uh, called Tully. If you haven't seen that, uh, go seek that out too. Uh, an impressive one-two punch from Mr. Jason Reitman, and uh, a real pleasure to have him in in my uh, silly little office in New York. Um, what's going on? Well, it's a rainy day here in New York. It's actually election day right now, so you know more than I do about how it all turned out. But uh, as I sit here today, I'm optimistic. So hopefully it came to pass that way. Uh, good things happened, let's hope. Um, Anyway, uh, lots of cool things uh, that I've been up to lately that you can catch up on if you want. Uh, I've done a bunch of really fun MTV news interviews that should be popping up on MTV's um, YouTube page, their Facebook, and of course, if uh, all else fails, check out my social media, Joshua Horowitz on Twitter. I'll post the conversations there. Uh, I sat down with our friend, our obsession, Benedict Cumberbatch last week. Yes, Benedict. Um, Benedict, I should say also for fans of my after hour series, uh, most recently starred in one of our sketches. And this was the first full on like scripted after hours bit I've ever done with Benedict. Um, we shot this, I know uh, there was a lot of conjecture online about this, um, about when we shot it because he has a different haircut. He doesn't have the mustache he currently has. And yes, I teased it many months ago. The truth is we shot this sketch over a year ago. Um, and it was kind of, frankly, a casualty of the craziness around his film, The Current War. Uh, the Current War was a film that was going to be released by the Weinstein Company. I don't need to tell you the story of what happened to the Weinstein Company. Uh, and The Current War is still, um, you know, kind of out there in the ether, I think. I don't even know if there's a release date or a studio attached to it right now. Hopefully it will see the light of day sometime because it features an amazing ensemble, including Benedict. But suffice it to say, we shot this great sketch uh, 
probably 13, 14 months ago, and we've been sitting in on, on it ever since, and the time was right with his new film, The Grinch. And if you have not watched it yet, it's one of my, uh, immediately one of my favorite after hours we've ever done. He was on fire. It is a parody, if you didn't know, of the Masterclass series. Uh, I'm obsessed with those. I've been thinking about for a while doing a parody of those uh, trailers and those videos, and Benedict delivered so well. So check out the Benedict Cumberbatch After Hours um, on the uh, Comedy Central After Hours page on Facebook, on Comedy Central's After Hours YouTube page, or again, it's on my social media too. Definitely recommend that one. We've also shot, by the way, a couple very cool new After Hours that are coming up in the next couple weeks. One, um, I mean, I guess I can say it. You're listening to the podcast. You're a devoted After Hours and Happy Sad Confused fan. Uh, Sam Hewen. Sam Hewen returning to the After Hours fold. That is coming up. That should be the next one we roll out. So keep an eye out on that. Um, please do subscribe to, or rather, I guess, follow the After Hours uh, Comedy Central Facebook page, and you won't be able, you won't uh, be able to avoid it. Um, but anyway, sorry. As I was saying, Benedict Cumberbatch. I sat down also for a conversation for MTV about the Grinch. Super fun. That should be up very soon. Also sat down with. Uh, Claire Foy, who I could not love more, of course, from The Crown, and now uh, in The Girl in the Spider's Web. She is the new Elizabeth Salander, killing it as always. So happy for her. Always a delight to talk to. And uh, and I'm also very busy with all sorts of Fantastic Beasts shenanigans. Um, shot something with a little... Uh, one of the actors in that for upcoming After Hours. Yes, keep an eye out for that. And uh, shooting more with the entire cast. Uh, a great, great ensemble in this one. I've seen the film. Do not worry. I'm not going to spill the secrets here. But I was a big fan of the first Fantastic Beasts, and this one is exceptional as well. Really ends with a bang, a bit of a cliffhanger. You're not going to want to miss that. So a lot going on. A lot of good movies, a lot of good conversations, a lot of good sketches. What more can you ask for? And hopefully, as I said, by the time you listen to this, please, Lord, let the, let the election have gone well. And if not, you can shake your head and say, well, I've got some silly Benedict Cumberbatch sketches to keep us, get, keep us going, getting us through the day. <laughs> um, in the meanwhile, let's all enjoy this conversation with one of our bright young filmmakers. I'll call him young because he's about my age and I'm certainly sprightly and young. Uh, Mr. Jason Reitman. Go check out The Front Runner when it appears in a theater near you. If you're in New York and Los Angeles, it should be, that should be right now. And if not, be patient. The film is coming to you uh, right around Thanksgiving, November 21st. Here's Jason. Oh, look, it's Jason Reitman in my office. Does this approximate what you know of Josh Horowitz over the years? Does this feel right? Honestly, I didn't know quite what to expect. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, it, like if, if there's like 10 different versions of your office, that would have been like, yep, yeah, makes sense. Okay. Uh, but is this one of the better poss possibilities in your mind? Definitely. Look, oh. I mean, uh, if there was going to be three posters behind you and I'm just going to read them off, you got color of money back to the future and big trouble, little China. And that's a great trio. I'm not going <laughs> to knock that. Uh, love Un the color of money. Underrated Scorsese. hundred percent underrated. It's a fantastic movie. If that movie is on, I'll say this. Um, if Goodfellas is on. I may not watch it. It's an it's an undertaking. Like, like you're in for yeah, two and a like half I know hours Goodfellas. And... It's obviously brilliant. If yeah. it's on though, I'm not. I don't feel the need. If Color Money's on, I agree. I don't care if it's three thirty a.m. I'm gonna be up till five thirty. I'm watching that movie. Newman's amazing. They're all amazing. They are all Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. 
So good. Amazing. And like one of the best Tom Cruise performances. And it breaks your heart with Newman. And the shooting is gorgeous. And the handling of the Midwest and the snowy streets and the mud and the old pool halls. and The ending. Uh, I the mean, ending's killer. The ending is ex- well, uh, clearly my favorite kind of ending. Right, right, is right. like a, an ending <laughs> before the ending happens. Like credits before you're like, oh, wait. Uh, then you got Back to the Future. I mean, what, what, what more is there to say? I mean, perhaps, you know, top movie, five kind of? screenplays ever written. Right. Uh, just an absolute gorgeous movie with, so like, the economy of storytelling. Uh, you know what the amazing thing about Back to the Future is? Sorry, do you mind if I just monologue no, on No, this your, is our podcast. Uh, this is what is, it is. Is how little Christopher Lloyd is in it. Right. They, like, Doc Brown, like, when Doc Brown and Marty McFly say goodbye to each other at the end of the movie, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Right. And you'd think they'd just spent 10 <laughs> years on the castaway <laughs> island. They've met each other, like, three times in real, and, like, in as, as far as, like, the movie's life goes, right. they've, they've had so few scenes. He literally, like, shows up, there's a confused hello, how are you, he sleeps at the house, he goes to the school, comes back, shows the model, and then they're, like, off. And, like, that's it. Well, it's probably, as you say, economical in that, like, that performance and that character is so big and like mm-hmm. as much as i love the sequels there's more of doc in the sequels and they they're kind of bigger and broader and yeah, crazier. yeah, yeah. It, it's it's have you ever heard the original like what was the log line like what gave bob gale the idea no tell me the idea was what if you met your father in high school would you guys be friends you've heard of it yeah brilliant amazing yeah. And, and it's kind of it speaks to Everything I think about filmmaking in that, it's something my father used to say. Um, have I ever told you my father, my, the, the story about my father showing me the show 24? No. The Kiefer me. Sutherland show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. so one day my dad gives me a call and he says, uh, you got to come over and watch 24. Like now? Yeah, like now. <laughs> okay. All of it? <laughs> so yeah, Like literally, so I get in my car, I go to my dad's house, and he's got like a movie theater in his house, and he turns it on, and we watch Four episodes of 24. Like four hours of 24. Okay. And it's great. Like, have you watched it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a killer show. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, he was right. It was a great show. And and he loved it. And I said, why is this so good? I said, there's so many shows about terrorism. Why is this show so good? And my dad goes, this isn't a show about terrorism. This is a show about a man trying to keep his family together. And it's like, and he said, don't confuse your location for your plot. I love it. And it was... It was so important, and and that's perfect on. It's Back got to all the frosting. It's got all the, the the bells and whistles that make it fun. But yeah. when you tear it apart, and the With reason the story it lasts, actually the reason about. that yeah, the reason that one is a classic, and the other two are good fun movies, is what you're talking about. Time travel is a location, right? What what if you met your father in high school? Would you be friends? That is what the movie is about, and and the great movies know that difference. Strikes me when you give me that log line. Go full, full circle this year on, on Tully. That's a little bit of like. Oh, are we going to talk about my movies? Well, I was just really? Say, I couldn't help. I'm it. not here to do okay, that. Okay, let's move on to Big Trouble in Little China. We'll come back to Tully. <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China. All right. So, embarrassing story. <laughs> uh, I convinced my dad to take me to Big Trouble in Little China instead of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I. You should not feel any shame. I mean, they're both great. They're both great, but Ferris for me is like again, kind of a perfect movie. Yes, I mean, um, uh, uh, and don't get me wrong, I love Big Trouble in Little China, (laughs) but for me, Ferris is a little more iconic. That said, uh, and I'm like, I'm not a huge John Carpenter fan. I know he's found his way deep into the heart of of many movie lovers, and uh, I almost love his. 
his music writing mm. more than... That's what he does now. He does the tour. Where Have you seen him in concert? Do you no. know he does this? Oh, I may have heard. He has I like a Hans Zimmerian exactly. kind of concert thing. <laughs> but but Hans Zimmer, we could talk about it. Have you seen that? No, have I haven't. Have seen what he does? No. It's like he's like a one-man rock band. He's oh. like, it looks amazing. It, it like, it, I've it, heard it's great, but it looks, it's a little like... You know he played Coachella. It. I'm sure he did. It doesn't surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, so Big Trouble in Little China. Look at that poster. How can you say no to that face? It is a great poster. It's It's... Easily my favorite Carpenter film, uh, more than thing, more than uh, Halloween. Yeah, uh, and it there's something actually genuinely haunting about that movie, and I'm not sure if it's just because I saw it when I uh, mm. was a kid and it hit me at the perfect moment. Right. But I think there's a tone to it and a style to it that is genuinely haunting. Uh, well, it also like yeah, it hints at a larger world. A more there's there, it, it, it's a tip of the iceberg kind of mystery thing. Like if this is just like one corner of the strange universe that he's created, it's like it. it, it, it to You're use right. That, that 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 stupid phrase world building that we use all all the time, but it's true that I feel like I see I'm seeing a corner of John Carpenter's weird brain in that and you're so right uh you just kind of crystallized something that i've felt for a while um that sometimes with the marvel universe i feel like i'm seeing too much it's like look at this giant world we built where there's something thrilling about a filmmaker who's going i'm going to show you i'm just going to give you a peak right and that peak is going to make you think this world is enormous right it's the uh, this is the worst um, example of that oh, ever. Yeah, yeah, but here. along the lines of Big Trouble yeah. in Little China, Buckaroo Banzai. Oh yeah. Do you remember? I, I'll never forget when I was a kid watching. Um, they're like running through like some facility, and I think Jeff Goldblum asks Peter Weller, "What's that watermelon doing here?" And Peter Weller says, "It's a long story. I'll tell you later." That's the other story. That's the world. <laughs> <laughs> what is that story? It's funny. All right. Uh, <laughs> Bucker Banzai is a great example of every once in a while, I imagine myself having to explain to my daughter, like, what this movie was and, like, why it came out and not, it just no never, no, never being able to do that. Like, you know, like, I imagine her watching Bucker Banzai and being like, Dad, like, what is this? Like, why does this exist? And right. it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. I have, it's like an armadillo. Like, I just, like, <laughs> like, there's no reason. Like, I cannot explain this creature. No, there wasn't in 84. There's not in 2018. Mm. Um, Wow, we could do that for 45 more minutes, and maybe we should. Uh, how you doing, though? You just came from Savannah, I think, right? Yeah, I was in Savannah, uh, which is amazing. Uh, well, you know, we shot can't. the movie for a couple of weeks in Savannah. We right. shot not only the Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C. stuff, but the Miami stuff in right. locations 15 minutes apart, which kind of gives you an idea of the scope of <laughs> Savannah, that you can have this old world charm that, you know, it's, a, it's like a city that during the Civil War, I guess, they almost destroyed, but there was enough wealthy people there that they that the army, I don't know, didn't destroy this gorgeous city. So you have this peek into what, you know, uh, upper crust suburbs looked like hundreds of years ago right. with the Spanish moss and the whole thing. And then 15 minutes away, you got like a a beach, like a, like a, like a Florida style, like party beach. Did you uh, ever frequent um, the uh, illustrious restaurant, the Pirate's House, when you were in Savannah? Do you know of the Pirate's House? No, I don't even know what you're talking you about. You shouldn't know about this. I visited Savannah recently, uh, like about a year or two ago. And, I, and when I was a kid, we would go, uh, my parents, like for some reason, we went on vacation to Savannah a number of times when I was a kid. And I went. I remember as a kid going to this restaurant called the Pirate's House where like the waiters dressed up as pirates and there was like all these kitschy things in there and it made a big impact as a kid. Oh, wow. This is the, the classic example of never. Never return. No. 
Never revisit. No. As an adult man going back, it still exists, but it's the saddest place ever. It's oh. like they're still dressed up as pirates, but the guy is literally like, hi. Oh, hey, I'm, you're from New York. I'm from New Jersey. I'm just here for a little bit playing a pirate. It was just. Anyway, oh, that sounds nothing. sad. You I went to a, a place called Trailer Park, which okay. is amazing. And if you do visit Savannah, you have to go there. Rage, okay. Oh, my God. They had these tacos that were like. The taco is a taco shell was made out of pancake, and then the inside was like fried chicken with like strawberry on it, and it it is so good. <laughs> and I, I got there, I got there, like I landed at eleven. I called to make sure they were still open. I got there, and they were still serving food. I sat down at the bar, and I had I just was a witness to this incredible moment where the bartender was a really good looking dude, and there was a woman sitting next to me, and she was clearly beyond tipsy, mm-hmm. and she was just like come on to the bartender she's like just just come over just and he's like i'll text you when i get off and she's like no you're not gonna text me come on come over to the house come on and i'll come over in the morning no i want you to come over tonight and it just like kept going and i'm just sitting right next to her and then so i was got like, the best of all possible and worlds. Like, you got a show and a tacos. meal yeah, exactly <laughs> uh you were there with hugh the most charming man on the planet yes um, he is you know to use I mean, he lives up to every cliche that, like, you hear about, like, those kinds of people. Um, and I guess, is it analogous a little bit to, like, publicity tour when you went on Up in the Air? You have, like, this, like, 600-pound behemoth of, like, charm and, 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 and wondrous um, just light in the universe next to you? I, I mean, they're two versions of the same thing. I mean, they're both enormous movie stars. Uh, George is just more private. Right. And, 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 and is not thrilled by promoting yes. things. Hugh he gets is something this, out of it. He enjoys is this it. <laughs> beacon of light that just wants to make the world happier and finds his way into kind of everybody's heart. Right. I've never experienced anything like it. He's the hardest working actor I've ever met, the most researched actor, the most joyful, decent, loves, you know, the people in his life. Uh, look, every Friday on set, he started doing this over a decade ago. He stops at like a, a liquor store, a grocery store on the way to set, picks up 200 scratcher tickets, like lottery tickets, right, right, and then one by one hands the scratcher tickets out <laughs> to every person on the crew because he realized, I just want an opportunity to shake every crew member's hand, look in their eyes, thank them for the work, and wish them luck. Amazing. Every, it just did this kind of apropos of nothing, just because... Wants to make people happy. Laughing Man, them. that's his coffee company. Yeah, yeah. Starts this, like, you think about all the, like, the actors who have, like, started companies uh, and made fortunes off right. them. <laughs> he started this coffee company and gives every cent back to the farmers in Colombia and Ethiopia yeah. who, like, make the coffee and, like, re-enriches their communities and build schools. I mean, it's just... Uh, he he's extraordinary. Did you know you? Okay, so so to give a little uh, promotion to the, this worthy cause of yours, the front runner, which is a film I greatly enjoyed. He plays, of course, Gary Hart in mm-hmm. the film. Um, this and I mentioned when I saw I saw you recently. I mean, this we're again roughly the same age. I think I was about twelve and eighty eight. I was twelve and eighty eight. I'm not that bad in math. He was the front runner, of course. Very charismatic. Um, brought down by a scandal. Did you know you needed a movie star for this kind of a role? It's not that that I knew I needed a movie star, but he just seemed kind of perfect. I mean, he was, you know, uh, cosmetically similar and, uh, you know, the right age and charismatic. And look, I mean, when you talk about the the Gary Hart story, you have a guy who literally was going to be the next president of the United States. Right. Right. He's 10 points ahead of George Bush, 25 points ahead of every Democrat. His ideas were big. He was smart. He was charismatic. He was Kennedy-esque. And in less than a week, he goes from being the presumed next president to leaving politics forever. 
And as charming as a leader as he was, he was in the Senate for two terms, um, this is going to be a tough week. And I wanted to make sure the decency of Gary Hart echoed through, even though we're covering right. this impossible week. Uh, and I knew that the decency of Hugh Jackman was going to find a way through in that performance. Did you know? I, I'm sure you're being asked a lot about sort of like the meaning of this film in the time we're living in, which mm-hmm. is this crazy, bizarre, volatile political climate. Like when you were probably developing this and decided to sign on and through shooting, like you were in the throes of what we're experiencing the last couple of years mm-hmm. to a degree. So, we're, I mean, how much, you know, you're a filmmaker, like I think most filmmakers, all filmmakers that want to make a film for all times, yeah. not just this time. How much were you worried that this is either the perfect time for this film or the worst time for this film. You know what I mean? Cause right, like yeah, by, yeah. day by day it changes. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, at one point things are like, Oh look, it's so relevant. And then the next day you're like, I could do with less relevancy. Right. Uh, and I, look, I'm like anyone else. I, I wake up these days. The first thing I do is I wake up, I check my phone and just go, fuck. You know? And I'm like, I look around and I wonder yeah. how the hell did we get here? Yeah. And, and look, I think every director is trying to, figure those questions out through their movies. Uh, you go into a movie because you have questions you want to answer about your life, about life in general. You know, what the hell are we doing here? Why did we get to this place? And and you also have to remember that we wrote this script in 2015. Right. Pre-election. So this story already felt relevant then because it talked about gender politics. It talked about the relationship between, you know, what is a public life versus a private life? You know, what is... The relationship between candidates and journalists and when did that change? And it happened to be that this moment, this one week, it was the first time a sex scandal took down uh, a potential president. And it was this beginning of a conversation about gender politics. It was the first time that tabloid journalism just drove into the lane of political journalism to stay right at the moment when tabloid journalism was going from print to TV, you know, a current affair goes on the television and and the satellite truck has just been invented. And because of that, the 24-hour news cycle has been created. So now we are trying to generate more news. So all these seeds that uh, lead us to this moment. So when the election happened and, and his closing speech suddenly have all this relevance. Right. You know, uh, the other interesting thing about Gary Hart is that in his closing speech, which is kind of his, the best speech he ever made, odd thing, right? Most great speeches are kind of mid-career, sure. you know, whether you're Abe Lincoln <laughs> or JFK. Right. This guy's greatest speech is the speech where he says, I'm walking away. And, and it ends with the line, uh, if we're not careful, America will get the leader it deserves. And all of a sudden that had a lot more relevance. Yeah. You know, whatever you think of this guy, you know, right. whatever side of the aisle you're on. And um, uh, and we had to think about that in the making, the end of the writing, the shooting, the cutting, the whole thing. I mean, it's as you alluded to this already. It's as much about journalism as it is about politics and, and more so probably. I mean, um, and, you, you know, you mentioned kind of like that fascinating kind of symbiotic relationship between the politician and the journalist mm-hmm. and them needing, needing each other. Mm-hmm. Similar in, in some ways to your our business. Yeah, <laughs> you know we kind of both need each other in different ways. Um, did w- was this also a way to kind of explore that for you? I mean, did you reconcile a little bit of like your own ups and downs with um, dealing with media over the years through the prism I, of this at all, or not? Not really, really only because I work in you know entertainment. Right. Like at the end of the day, who gives a shit? I mean, sure. you know, like uh, it's your like, wife. And like it's... we're sitting here talking about movies, and we love them passionately. And don't get me wrong, it's like everything I think about. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day. They're movies, right. you know, and and this is a guy. This is a guy who, in the mid '80s, was saying, 
America is addicted to oil. That addiction is going to take us into the Middle East, where we are going to face Islamic terrorism, and <laughs> we won't know. A we won't know how to uh, uh, fight it because we only have a, a military that knows how to bomb people. Right. You know, this is a guy who in '81 met Steve Jobs in the garage and came back to the Senate and said. The in the future, the economy is going to be based on whether or not you know how to use a computer. Let's put a computer in every classroom. Right. This guy was like a guy ahead of, on everything and was really prescient. Um, so I, I'm more just kind of curious about the conversations that we have about politics right. and how shrill they've become. You go into Twitter and it's like you're going to get your head ripped off. And somehow through the prism of 1987, perhaps we can just have a more rational conversation about right. these untouchable topics. Um, I mentioned before, this is a hell of a year for you. You had Tully earlier in the year, which was fantastic. Thank you. Um, again, reteaming with Diablo, Cody, of course, and Charlize. Mm-hmm. Um, have Charlize and Hugh ever worked together? That would be a fascinating combo. Her potty mouth, uh, mouth of a sailor and his just sweetness. <laughs> By the way, I love that. Charlize <laughs> is literally one of the greatest actresses oh. alive. And your first descriptor is, she's such a potty mouth. She is. Isn't she? <laughs> she come on, is. come on. No, you're right. No, she's no. amazing. No, the first I, time I met her, I she told me a dirty joke and I fell in love with her. I love, I love yeah. her beyond everything. But I just think that would be a fascinating uh, personal combo. I agree. Um, and I love them both. Um, so this is your, uh, to, to bring our, our movie geekdom into it, this is your, what, your Schindler's uh, Jurassic Park year. This is the that rare twofer for a director. I mean, all That's in saying an- that, you're just <laughs> trying to get me attacked. You're just like, why are you comparing him to like one of the greatest directors ever made? I mean, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year. Like, right. come on. Like, maybe, I, it's, maybe it's your Amistad Lost World year. I... Okay, well, don't be an asshole. I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, is that just happenstance? Was that the way that really schedules that kind of a thing, or just one came right after the other? Uh, honestly, uh, it's a function of Diablo Cody and Matt By and Jay Carson. Right. It's 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 getting to work with great writers yeah. uh, who happened to their the scripts came around around the right time, and then they wanted to release Tully on Mother's Day. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that was a great idea at the end of the day, but, uh, they did. And, uh, now and you're attached to just, uh, special days and, uh, election days and mother's days. You're going to be Labor like, day. Gary Marshall. Know, like, you're like the whole... yeah, thanks. That's all I need. Uh, but it, uh, it just worked out that yeah. way. And, and honestly, the, the strangest part of it is promoting the movies back to back. Yeah. So it's it's going on the road and like I was just in Philadelphia and I was just in Chicago and I'm returning to like morning radio shows and TV shows where it's like, "Hey, I was here 5 months ago <laughs> with another movie." Still the same guy. Still the same guy. No <laughs> new stories. Sorry. Same flaws. Um okay, so let's let's go back a little bit and, and revel a little bit in our movie geekdom. So growing up, um Son of a very prominent filmmaker, obviously, to say the least. I mean, were the, were, I, I'd like to imagine the, the arguments around the Reitman table were not about politics, but about, like, what was your favorite, Scorsese or Spielberg or Kubrick? I'm like, at all close? Was there a lot of film discussed in your house? Yeah, and I, you know, and I felt my dad trying to show me great films early on. Like, I remember him putting on Butch Cassidy and Manchurian Candidate and Citizen Kane. Um, I remember the big one was Dr. Strangelove. I remember when he showed me that. Uh, I remember we went camping one year. Uh, like, uh, we would go camping every week, you know, like, uh, my dad was big into summer camp as a kid. There's a reason why he made Meatballs uh, as his first movie. <laughs> and... Uh, and he told me the story of Alien, like as a campfire story, like start to finish. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and it's funny because then I later on saw Alien, and realized 
Wait, I know it's coming. Like, I, he, so he told us. This, this is that old legend that they tell by the campfire. Exactly. <laughs> he spoiled Alien, but it, it didn't matter. Um, I wonder but, if people do that today with Prometheus. Do you think they uh, are very did, involved? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Charlize doesn't run in the right direction. She runs. She sh- she could have just zigzagged, but she mm-hmm. didn't. As a campfire story, <laughs> let's. Let's talk about where we come from. (laughs) For you to understand the campfire story, I'm going to explain DNA. Uh, (laughs) Are you familiar with the theory that we were seeded on Earth by aliens thousands of years ago? Open. Prologue. (laughs) That's on a map. This this story is going to be horrifying as an existential crisis. Um, How are your s'mores? (laughs) Glad we entertain each other. Uh. But no, my childhood, for the most part, I think it was kind of normal, frankly. Like, my parents uh, were very, they were together, they were normal, they were hard on me about grades. Uh, I don't feel like I saw a lot of Hollywood. Uh, A very weird example, but I think some, for whatever reason, is emblematic. Um, uh, I, I have never seen cocaine in my life. And I'm 41 years old, and to this day I've never seen it. So I think that kind of just wait till the end of the podcast. Until we close every podcast, we do <laughs> oh, a lot. Oh, exciting! I, you know, I've been looking for the. I, w- I wanted it to happen for the first time with the right person. I no, but like, like so as a kid, like right. I really don't think. Uh, however, they did it. They did it right. right. I did not have access to whatever the darker side of Hollywood was, and I really never felt like I was a part of that. I right. felt like I had two pretty normal parents uh, who were interested in the right things. Uh, But I got to grow up also on movie sets. So I got to see how movies were made. And I really thought of them as a craft. And I thought of them as, here's a job that people do. And I knew what the different jobs were on set. And I saw what the good days versus the bad days looked like. And I was a PA by the time I was 13. I was a PA on Kindergarten Cop. Right. So, you know, running around to walkie and, you know, uh, doing little things here and there. Was there ever any other job on a set that, you thought you would make a go of it at, or was it always writer or director? I mean, kind of? I, I, I loved the camera crew. I loved hanging with the, the camera boys and, uh, I loved special effects. I mean, an NZ kind of young boy would. Right. So any film that had special effects, I just, I really got a kick out of how it was done and kind of the magic trick level of, of filmmaking. But I was interested in, all of it, maybe everything but hair and makeup, but uh, I don't think I spent any time in that trailer. But uh, but otherwise, uh, I I was really into the fairy tale and and what was, and what was your relation to your you know you worked on some of your dad's films you appeared in some of your dad's films how like, dare you <laughs> we, we'll dig up the video um, the your relationship to, to enjoying them like I mean you know when I'm again we're roughly the same age when I'm seven or eight and I see Ghostbusters it, it it's the best thing I've ever seen and I go on to see it a hundred more times is it that way for you or is it oh that's the film that made dad miss my seventh birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, in fact, uh, uh, my birthday is right around Halloween. So, uh, I like to say that every, every kid that year was a ghostbuster. I was the only one with a real proton pack, <laughs> but, uh, no, I remember no, that was magical. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing Ecto one for the first time. I remember, um, uh, the day, they blew up the, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and I saw William Atherton stand under what looked like like a hundred-ton bag of shaving cream, and they just emptied it, and it fell on him. Uh, you know the the gag with the, um, uh, in the library, the, what are those cards? The index cards. Sure. Um, 
I remember the special effects test of the index cards where they showed it to my father for the first time, and the the the, the shelf slid out, and they go, and they all flew out into the air. Right. Uh, and right. I said, "Can you do it again?" And they said, "Sure, kid, pick them up." Um, so. Uh, it was absolutely magical. It was the perfect time. I was I was seven years old, and my father was, uh, in a weird way, making a movie for me. I mean, I, I compare that to my my daughter who's twelve now, and who has literally never seen any of my movies because they're all rated R and, and existential. <laughs> right to men, women, and children. No, <laughs> no, do not, hey, kiddo. <laughs> so do it's interesting because you know you obviously appreciate and love. The, the kinds of films your dad made and, and yeah. others of his ilk made yeah, back yeah. in the day and the posters on my wall. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, especially early in your career when people were still kind of like figuring out what mm-hmm. like the Jason Reitman thing was going to mm-hmm. be. There was a lot of like, well, are you going to direct a Ghostbusters movie? And mm-hmm. are you going to do all that? And I feel like m- most people have like gotten it now. Like that's not what you're about necessarily, even though it, it is what it you're about. It just took 20 years, but, uh, well, <laughs> we're slow on behalf you, of the entire tell, media. We're a little you, slow. <laughs> uh, I, um, I like to say when someone tells you who they are, maybe listen. Right, right. But I guess my point though, is that it, that stuff's in you too. Clearly you love that stuff. Yeah. But I also learned early on that you have to think about what kind of movie are you a fan of versus what kind of, uh, movie are you a maker of? Right. Um, you know, it's funny. I've gotten close to John Hughes's son, James Hughes. And, uh, and he, he, one of the stories I loved is he said, you know, my dad loved hip hop. Everyone always wanted to like, you know, send him new wave music because of the music <laughs> and his films, but he loved hip hop. <laughs> and I get that. I get that idea of, yeah. look, there's a, I love Die Hard. I obsessively love the movie Die Hard. I'm never going to make Die Hard. You don't want me making Die Hard. That being said, like a Peter, like Ryan Johnson. And I know you liked Last Jedi, as did I. Huge fan. Amazing. Um, I don't know if necessarily after Brick he would have said, maybe he would have, I don't know, that I want to make a Star Wars movie. Nothing about like using different tools, testing yourself in different ways, seeing if you can do the Jason Reitman version, not to say Star Wars particular, but but, uh, that ilk of, of the things that are dominating the multiplex. There's, it's just still not of interest. It's just not your thing. Uh, what's the movie you'd like to see me make? I, I'm not. I'm let's not just figure, you let's you know what. Let's figure this out right now. Let's <laughs> just get right down to it, shall yeah, we? It's, I, it's not about you and like your name and like your dad. Even it's about. I would have this conversation with any filmmaker, right? And, and, and it's because, in some ways, like it's the track that a lot of people want to put filmmakers on. It's like, well, when are you going to make your hundred million dollar movie? Right. Maybe you never want to make your hundred million dollar. Well, movie. I mean, I suppose what I'd say is about a, having a hundred million dollar movie is you lose a lot of control. And uh, when I think of it just as a dollar amount, nothing about a $100 million movie appeals to me. Right. Uh, I would say the cheaper movie always appeals to me because that's one that you could tell in a personal way. Uh, and you have more control as a filmmaker. You get to say more interesting things. And everyone's a little less nervous because they don't have as much money on the line. Right. When there's $100 million on the line, everyone is absolutely terrified. And you are working with a group who is, you know, wondering if they're going to make their money back. Uh, Now, as far as the kind of tone and style of the movie, look, I mean, if I happen upon a a script like The Fugitive, another brilliant movie, but it's a character-based movie that has action in it, like, would that be exciting? Yeah, of course it would be. Um, Look, if I could tell, uh, uh, make a movie like the ones we've been talking about, that actually was a personal movie about things that, I relate to uh, uh, 
family and 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 who we are, but within the context of a bigger movie, I would totally be interested well, in that. Even even like I was alluding to earlier, without hopefully ruining too much for people, Tully is a high concept movie. Mm-hmm. It's like it's your version of kind of like a high concept. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's my <laughs> it's, it's my sixth sense. Right. So in some ways, like yeah, that's a, that's a Jason Reitman version of that kind of a thing, I suppose, a high concept twist kind of a movie. Yeah. Yeah, the the postpartum depression version. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. all, all you need to know need to know is that like you know your dad's political movie was like Dave via you know Frank yeah. Capra, and yours is the front runner via you know Michael Ritchie and right. And, yeah. Although and although in this case uh, the front runner actually is a thriller. I mean, like, it true. actually is. Yeah, it yeah. actually is like a political thriller that has humor to it. Yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. It's less than a week, and a guy leaves the the presidency, and it's. Uh, uh, I remember hearing the story for the first time on Radiolab and then being like, oh, this is, yeah. this feels like a movie. And it like has this moment in an alleyway where a great scene, a, amazing. Yeah. Uh, this guy <laughs> out, like out, to, out back from his house in the middle of the night is confronted by these reporters and it feels like a Western standoff in the yeah. middle of a film noir. I mean, um, uh, it felt like a thriller. Um, with Tully, I say, come for the postpartum depression, stay for the six cents. <laughs> um, how did you know how to direct the quality of actors you did in your first feature. I mean, I just had Sam Elliott in here, mm-hmm. um, you know, JK, Duvall, Aaron Eckhart, obviously. Like, like how did you I mean, navigate that? I mean, you've kind of answered the question, you know, within the question. I mean, it's the quality of actors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they know what they're doing. You don't, I mean, uh, but look, uh, directing requires this weird combo of ego and arrogance and empathy and sensitivity. Mm. So you need to be a sensitive, empathetic person who feels what other people feel and need to understand character and how that's going to make an audience feel. Simultaneously, you have to presume you're right. There's no room on set for a director who doesn't think they know what's right. Of course you have to watch every shot and go, this is wrong because of these reasons. And if you're not, then you shouldn't do that job. But... Even if you, what, what if you don't actually know? Do you have to, you have to kind of like assume, like pretend well, that you know? <laughs> my, 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 my father, and I think I may have told this before, uh, forgive me if I have, uh, once said to me, it's not your job to be funny. It's not your job to know what's funny. It's your job to be a barometer for truth. And your barometer for truth is always on. Right. So watch something and ask yourself, do you believe it? Right. Does that feel truthful? Is that honest? And if not, why? Is it not honest because of the way they're saying it or what they're saying? Or the conversation should be shorter? Or they should sit down into it or stand up into it? Or it's the laptop that's in sitting in front of them. That, he wouldn't have that laptop. He wouldn't have a Mac. He'd have a PC. You know, uh, so if you start processing every question through that the truth filter, barometer, yeah. mm-hmm. it starts to make sense. And, and, and these things don't have to be conscious like you don't you're not literally sitting there on someone going hmm what feels honest to me you're, right, you're right, right. it's just kind of you an instinctual thing it. it's coming at mm-hmm. you and the more you make movies I, I think honestly the hardest thing is at the beginning of your career you have no experience right and it it used to be it's less so now it used to be how do you get experience in a job that requires so much money to try anything right just to make your first short film right and uh 
And now... Yeah, you were kind of the last wave of that before. Now. Were you shooting them on film and you have to like get, get a camera and, and, and process and develop and, right. get, and somehow cut it together and make answer prints? I mean, so uh, now it's become more democratic. Now you look, I mean, if Sean Baker can make Tangerine on an iPhone, anyone should be able to make a film on their iPhone. Right. There is uh, software that comes to your phone. Uh, there's software that you can download for free to edit these things. You can distribute on a variety of video platforms online and have a hit. So um, that barrier to entry has come down, and you can now practice in real time. What, what do you think, though, you were learning? I'm curious, like, because you did a bunch of shorts. You went, you took one to Sundance, mm-hmm. as I remember. Um, like, what did you get out of that trial and error or was it simply trial and error? I mean, it's a combo of two things, right? So on one side, you're just figuring this thing yeah. out. I mean, if you imagine how many times a, a baseball player goes into the batting cage and goes, you know, and their swing is just, it's just the muscle memory of if I do this, the ball goes this way, I do this, the ball goes that way. Right. Um, and you're doing the same thing with, oh, I shouldn't have shot it that way. Uh, by shooting it on this lens or at this distance or at this height or by moving the camera, by panning instead of dollying, all these little choices affect how the image makes you feel and you practice that. Um, simultaneously, you're figuring out your voice. Right. So one party who's just learning pure technique, just like, okay. Muscle memory, as you said. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. like if I shoot it this way, it's never gonna work yeah. and you wouldn't have known that earlier, now you know. The other side of it is, what is your voice? And, and every filmmaker at the beginning of their career is copying somebody else. So if you look at my first short films, you go, I get it. You love Quentin Tarantino. You desperately want to be Quentin Tarantino. And for every generation, it's different. But if you were, you know, my age in the late 90s, like, that was it. He was the rock star. Sure. You know, he was Iggy Pop, you know. And then, um, and slowly but surely, you start to wean your way off of trying to look and feel like somebody else. And you start trusting that instinctual way that you want to say something that you were embarrassed of in the same way that you're embarrassed of your own voice in high school. And you're just like, I just don't want to sound like me. I don't want to look like me. And then you start to go, okay, I am me. Like, that's it. I can't control that. And, and so hopefully this thing happens where your technique comes into its own while you find your voice and by that point, you've lived enough life and made enough mistakes that you actually have something to say. Right. What do you think the, the biggest difference is the way you run a set or the way you approach filmmaking today versus the first couple? I mean, I'm way more calm. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think I was terrified my first few films, and I just really wanted to get over the finish line. And now I stop, and I really enjoy... I get to make movies with people I love. I mean, crew people that go back to Thank You for Smoking, right. some further than that, my DP back to high school. So uh, I get to be on the set, living you know, a new life every day with people I love. Cast, I get to work with the best actors on earth. Like literally the best actors yeah. on earth. And, and I love it. I love every day of it. And, and if you would ask me when I was younger, I would just be just absolutely terrified and all I was thinking is I hope I can get this thing done the, you know I'm curious like you know in, in the nature of these con- kind of conversations we always talk about kind of like the arcs of a career and the different mm-hmm. kind of sections and you know what you part kn- of the downfall am I in well no I'm, that, that's not what I'm <laughs> saying at all but you know as well as I do like you the first few films you know thank you for smoking Juno up in the air it's like you can do no wrong mm-hmm. right like riding high oh and, little did they know how well, wrong I could do that's not what I'm saying but I guess but I'm, you're a smart enough guy to know and having seen your dad go through yeah. ups and downs that like 
as much as they love to build you up, they love to tear you down. Were you cognizant of that and, and kind of like, well, at some point it's going to, especially like after something like Juno, where it's like, it's not just a success, it's a pop culture phenomenon. And like, even that, I remember there was backlash against Juno, you know? Yeah. Uh, I were mean, were you sealing yourself against that? Were you kind of like inevitably, I'm going to have to go, go through that kind of shit? I remember something I said quite a few <laughs> times during Up in the Air where I said, the best career movie, I, the best career move I could make right now is die. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably true. Like, if I had just gone out on those three films, it'd have been like, man, imagine what he could have made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, the John Cazale. Uh, uh, yeah, director. but um, uh, but look. Uh, so after Up in the Air, uh, I made Young Adult, which uh, oddly amongst directors is always their favorite film of I was mine. Say, it's one of my favorites. And of yours. Yeah, um, and it's the film. I feel like Young Adult is. You know, there's that person who there's some people that everyone agrees is attractive, and then there's those people where they're everyone thinks the most gorgeous. They were they're like, what yeah, the fuck or like at? people think they're the only person to ever find them attractive, <laughs> right, right, right. and that's how people are always about Young Adult. Right. They think they're the only one who ever liked right. that film, right. and uh, and I love that about that movie. And then look, Labor Day and Men, Women, and Children. Um, I think are qualified failures. <laughs> I think, uh, but are um, they uh, uh, creatively or just by the way that, like, uh, objectively speaking, from your you can't be objective, but like, would you, uh, irrespective of box office and all the and the critical reception, would you say? <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not just, no, no. Okay, this is what I'll say. Yeah, I know why I made both of them. Okay, uh, they both required leaps in technique and education on my part as a filmmaker. They right. were hard to make. And um, uh, and in many ways joyful to make both of them. Uh, and Men, Women, and Children, I'm particularly proud of the talented young actors that were in that film who are all kind of like blowing up. Like, Ansel Timothy. Yeah, Ansel Timothy, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin Deaver. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a huge list. Uh, and I think Men, Women, and Children, I think will be a film that will age well. I don't think Labor Day will age well. But... Uh, look, you know you're going to have films that are not going to connect. And it sucks. No, it's painful. And uh, and whiskey was drunk. Uh, but uh, but that's part of it. Look, uh, this is a great job. Yeah. I get to go make movies. Um, and I get to tell these stories. And, and I get to work with really talented people. And some are going to work and some are not. And and look, I'm happy that I'm having a good year. I'm glad that people like Tully. I'm glad that people like the front runner. And uh, I, well, and also if you don't push yourself and take risks, I mean, as you say, you were kind of like going in. You know, Labor Day was a departure. Mm-hmm. Front runner, in many ways, seems like a departure. Yeah, if totally. You if you don't go for that, what are you doing? Like, what? Why bother making the same film over and over again? Yeah, and I, I guess it gets down to like, why do you make movies? Right. And and everyone does for different reasons. Like, some people just make movies because they want to be at the party. Right. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, uh, and uh, and some make movies for the money, and uh, uh, some are chasing big box office, uh, and and look, some are the opposite. Some are being trying to be as esoteric as humanly possible, and you know, they the, would prefer if everyone said, "I, I just don't understand your movie," and it'd be like success. <laughs> and you know, right. I, um, did, did, I I have questions. I'm trying to answer right. questions. Did did, did the early kind of Oscar acclaim and nominations, does that fuck with the young filmmaker's brain a little bit where like, it is a moment where, you know, enough people say you're a genius that you mistakenly <laughs> believe it, you know? And like, you know, if enough people say, and you're like, yeah, I guess I am. It's like, and then, right. and then, 
And then, yeah, and then the, the balloon gets popped and you go, oh, that's right. I'm just like, I'm just a dude like everyone else. I'm just trying to, you know, right. tell stories. And sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. Um, do you have like a pile of like, or at least a small pile of scripts that you want to get made? Like, how does it work for you? I mean, Diablo <laughs> came to you with that idea. I know and it, you immediately responded to it. Uh, um how does it, is there a general kind of process for how you're seeking out material or developing material? I mean, so far my career has gone like this. Uh, there's things that I'm writing and there's things that Diablo Cody's writing and, and, and they've kind of interwoven nicely. Yeah. Every five years Diablo writes something and we make it. And I hope that just keeps going for the rest of our lives together. I hope this is like a, like a, a filmmaking marriage yeah. and simultaneously there's things that interest me. I've only got like a few things in development at any given time. I'm writing a couple things. Uh, there's a couple writers who are writing things for me, but, uh, in, in, in general, it's a, it's a small, I'm not one of those directors who has like 20 movies right. being developed across the spectrum. Uh, I just, I don't understand that. Do you, you obviously had success on television with casual. Are mm -hmm. you developing anything else for TV? Uh, I am. And yeah, I'll, I'll say, I find TV a little tricky in that it has no ending. When I think of why I want to tell stories, right. it oddly starts with the ending. Mm. And it starts with that feeling that you have right as the movie ends and the filmmaker pushes you out the door of the movie theater and you are thrust back into your life and you are now reflecting upon your life through the filter of the movie you just watched. Right. And television never ends. Right. Television is just, come back next week. And... And I get hooked on it. There's shows that I love, you know, love Thrones, love Mad Men, recently love Killing Eve, love Fleabag. Uh, I love, you know, have you watched um, Patriot on Amazon? No. Fantastic. Really? Fantastic. Nothing about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, great writer. Um, okay. uh, so do you, do you like the movie The Weatherman? Yes. Nicholas Cage? Yeah, Gore Verbinski. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, same writer. Oh, cool. So, uh there's definitely a TV I love, but like our conversation began with Color of Money. Right. You think about that ending. Like it's one of the first things you said because it, it, I mean, he almost like, he almost shoots you out of the movie theater with the pool cue. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, or, or think about, think about how Kubrick films leave something in your gut for a week. Right. And you can't help but look at the world through the lens that he just left you with. I mean, that's what I'm after. I just watched, uh, or I'm actually almost finished with, there are closed, closed looped ones where um, Stiller just directed like eight hours Escape at Danamora. Do you know about this? This mm. crazy like upstate Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do thing. actually know about it. I, I know a couple people worked on it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, talk about a change of pace, but... Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm like coming to like the last episode, which I noticed is 100 minutes, and I'm like, okay, he's ending with a, a little mini film of his and own. And look, uh, and what, what Kerry Fukunaga did yeah. uh, on True Detective... Uh, it's exciting. It interests me. Yeah. I, I, I haven't found that marathon that I'm ready to run yet. Have you? Okay, so we're in the fun part of the year. And I know as someone that like consumes. What is the fun part of the year? You well, mean like Christmas is coming? Well, or? no, I don't mean that. I mean fall movies, good oh, movies, okay. good movies, and you get the trailers for the summer movies, the the, the fun movies next oh, year. Yeah. I always love the fall that way. Yeah. So, um, have you have you seen? I, I, you watch a lot. I yeah. mean, Movie wise, uh, have you caught up on like? The, the fall movies. Have you seen the Romas and the... Yeah. Uh, have you seen Roma? Yeah. Amazing. Extraordinary. Yeah. Just. I started watching Roma and like five minutes in, I was like, okay, I get it. It's pretty. And then halfway through, I was like, oh God, why do I bother directing? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> he's, he's such an kind of out and out genius in yeah. that movie. Uh, you know, I employ anyone who's listening, I employ you. When you see Roma, 
see it in a theater yes. with Atmos sound. The sound is as good as the picture, and that movie deserves to be seen communally. Uh, it's extraordinary. Yep. Uh, Cold War. I still haven't seen it. I know everyone loves it. Is it amazing? It's amazing. Yeah, I need to it's see. amazing. The two best movies of the year. Black are and white. Foreign and black and white. <laughs> and in, and in by the way, I think also both shot in digital sixty five. They're both pristine looking. Um, but oh my god, Cold War! Talk about economy of storytelling. Right. Where jumping through eras and giving each era just one shot to tell the story in that moment. Amazing. Uh, Dogman. I don't even know about this one. Oh my god, it's amazing. It's Italian. It's the uh um this is where we lose everybody. No, okay. <laughs> Let me go on about foreign films you don't care about. Um no, uh you ever see Gamora? Yes. That director. Oh, okay. Badass film. The actor won Best Actor at Cannes. Okay. It's violent and rich and crazy and Great. like no movie you've ever seen. Sold. Uh Dogman. <laughs> Romantic date night. <laughs> exactly. Um and I don't know. What what else is there? Um, I haven't lot. seen Damien's film yet. I need to see Damien's film. I haven't Very seen Stars Born yet. I need to see that. Very good. I know they're supposed to be great. You know what's really good uh, that I don't think, think enough people are talking about is Can You Ever Forgive Me? I thought it was great. The Mario Heller movie with uh, Richard Need to see Grant that. Obviously, want to see that. Obviously, she directed Casual, and right. her first film was about as good a debut yep. as I've ever seen. Yep. Um, are you still working on an animation, an animated project for DreamWorks? No, no. I, I mean, work. I mean, look, uh, DreamWorks got bought by Universal right. and it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But I still write with Gil Cannon, my okay. writing partner on that, who directed Monster House and right. Poltergeist. And, you know, he's a, a, a brilliant storyteller and he's, you know, we have our own writing marriage that I'm very proud of. So like, are, are you secure in like, are you able to make the movies that you want to make? It seemingly so with two coming out this year, but like in this era where like Fox Searchlight, for instance, which was a huge, you know, distributor of your, several of your early works. I don't know what that's going to look like. Hopefully, hopefully it'll still be around in a year or two with this merger, but like it's, it's an odd time. It's a totally strange time. And look, my last two movies were, financed and produced by Braun, an independent financing company up in Canada yeah. uh, that stepped up and made these two movies. Uh, and and I had Charlize Theron and Hugh Jackman. Right. <laughs> right? Like for modestly priced movies. So uh, it is a different era. Yeah. And uh, I think Netflix and Amazon have changed the landscape. I think the way we watch movies has changed the landscape. And this politicized time that has made people just kind of like, I get it. You want to watch popcorn movies right now. Like, right. I get it. Right. Um, so it's just a tricky moment. But I can't help but think that the pendulum swings. We had the 70s. We had the 90s. You know, I, I was in high school at that perfect moment when Quentin and... PTA and Alexander Payne yeah. and Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones and, you know, Tamara Jenkins and like all these, Nicole Hollis Center, all these cool directors, Wes Anderson, like they just, it was like punk rock happened totally. at the movies. And I have to believe that that'll happen again. Uh, you got through this entire conversation without alienating a huge segment of the audience. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> Really? <laughs> Have I not been a good guest? No, I'm just saying uh, you always you You're always proud of me you, for no, not. You always mention one incident in no, our past. No, we're not going to no, mention no, it. Okay. No, okay. no, no, we're doing good. Okay. We're doing okay. well. We're having a good time. Okay. I love you movies. Know, it's, still, it's still on the internet, by the way. What is? What? The, I can't. The, I don't know what you're talking the about. The thing you said once in an interview. Anyway. 
Jason? It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it was the first 48 minutes. Yeah, I know. You could have ended strong, you know. Um, I'm just impressed. The date was going so it, well. Just, <laughs> they're going to hear some massive edits, some like strange cut points here. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on both mm-hmm. Tully and the Front Runner. People should catch up with Tully. Uh, I assume it's out in every. It's digital, streamable, airplaneable. There you go. Maybe not air. Don't do airplane. I but. always <laughs> know when my movies go to airplanes because that's when I get the emails. Aww. Like there, I always get the email. Dude, I don't know why I didn't catch it the first time, but I just watched your movie while flying to Omaha, and man, it's great. <laughs> it is great on whatever screen you find it on. Uh, and check out the Front Runner in in a uh, in, in a, a theater, an actual theater, theater yeah, with other human beings. Look, this is a movie that we shot uh, as though we made it in the 70s shooting on 35 with a huge cast uh, with all kinds of technique and uh, and if you're interested at all I think you owe it to yourself to see it in the theater he, he sold it better than I possibly could uh, Jason it's always good to see you man uh, it's the best I'll see you later Thanks. and so ends another edition of Happy Sad Confused remember to review rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts I'm a big podcast person I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 